everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode, uh, I don't even know, 80-something, 90-something podcast. Uh, uh, I can never remember what episode number it is. But anyway, uh, we're not a very new podcast anymore, but for those of you out there uh, just listening and just tuning in for the first time, basically what this podcast is is I am... Uh, invite an author on to discuss a uh, book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published, something we think you guys out there would like to uh, hear a discussion about, and then hopefully at the end of the podcast or you know even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your uh, druthers about you, you go out and uh, purchase the book for yourself. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Mr. James Kerchick, and uh, Mr. Kerchick is a columnist for Tablet Magazine and a writer-at-large for Airmail. He is non-resident senior fellow for the European Center at the Atlantic Council, and has also been a fellow at the Brookings Institution, the Foreign Policy Initiative, and the Robert Bosch Foundation in Berlin. Uh, He is recipient of the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association Journalist of the Year Award, is a professional member of the Penn American Center, and sits on the advisory boards of the Vandenberg Coalition, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, and the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. His work has appeared in the New Republic, uh, the New York Times, the New York Daily News, the Washington Post, the Washington Examiner, the Wall Street Journal, National Review, the Los Angeles Times, Commentary, The Spectator, The Atlantic, the New York Review of Books, uh, New York Magazine, The National Interest, Rolling Stone, uh, Quillette, at the Weekly Standard, rest in peace, and the Times Literary Supplement. I think I, I'm pretty sure I got almost everything there. <laughs> uh, anyway, he is also the author of The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age. And lastly, the author of Secret City, uh, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, which was published back in May by Henry Holton Company, and is the book we'll be discussing today. So, uh, Mr. Kerchick, thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Tim. Oh, no problem. Uh, I gotta say, I, I really, uh, really, really love the book. Um, it's, it's, I don't know if it's technically a doorstop, but it's, <laughs> it's a very lengthy book. I haven't uh, tried stopping a door with it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to do that. Uh, it's a very lengthy book, but I gotta say, uh, uh books of that size, it's about uh, 650 pages of text and another, God, you know, almost maybe another couple hundred pages of, uh, of notes. And notes that uh, it's the most it was the most easily readable book of that size I've read in a while. Um, uh, just very very uh, addicting. Uh, it's, it's a it's a 650 page long page turner, uh, basically. Thank you. But yeah, no problem. Uh, but uh, but so why don't you tell everybody what made you want to write this book? What was uh, what was the genesis of it? Um, well, living in Washington and realizing that this is a town where secrecy is a form of currency, and there was no more dangerous secret during this period of time than to be gay. Uh, and we're talking about a period of time stretching from FDR to Bill Clinton, really the cold, the World War II until the end of the Cold War, so most of the 20th century. And I'm a lover of history and particularly Cold War history. Um, And the more I read uh, about this era, the more I realized this, that there was a uh, that this was the most powerful weapon, uh, the most destructive weapon was the accusation of homosexuality. It was the most dangerous thing to be was to be a sexual deviant, you know, to, to use one of the terms. Uh, that appears frequently in the book. And it just seemed like a fascinating prism through which to study uh, this period of time. It had never been done before. There's never been a book, you know, really even close to this to this theme before. And so I set out to write it myself. Mm-hmm. So um, how long did it take you to write this? What was your what was your process uh, with it? Because like I, I, I mentioned earlier, there's... Um, uh, you know, tons and tons of uh, endnotes to this book. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously you made use of archives and presidential archives and uh, uh, interviews with subjects yourself and uh, 
periodicals and those sort of things from the period. Um, like I said, so what uh, what was your process writing it? How long how long did it take you to to get this thing out? So I worked on it on and off for about ten years, but oh, wow. I really yeah, but I mean a lot of that time was off. Mm. <laughs> I mean I started work on it. You know I started work on it way back in. 2009 or 10 perhaps um but i moved overseas for a couple of years i wrote my first book uh i mean i would say in earnest i was working on this for probably four four or five years mm-hmm. um and it started with reading you know all the sort of secondary literature so reading lots of books um but again there's been no real books on this subject mm-hmm. you know save save one book that's been written that's an academic book that was written about 15 years ago about the the federal government purge of gay people in the 1950s there's really nothing but written about this subject so to speak so you know i was just reading a lot of history books you know biographies of j edgar hoover um books about mccarthyism and the cold war about the reagans just to get a kind of general sense of what was going on um and then, you know, putting together an outline of all the individuals and characters and events and sort of themes and phenomena in chronological order that I wanted to study. And then finding any sort of primary source documents about those individuals or cases. So, I mean, the book starts with this, the first real sort of gay scandal in American politics, uh, which involves Sumner Wells, who's who was FDR's undersecretary of state and was the first sort of victim of the kind of anti-gay, you know, scare uh, when he was forced to resign in 1943. And, you know, a book had been written about his rivalry with the secretary of state, Cordell Hull. And there's quite a bit in there on this episode um, where he where he was drunk uh, on the presidential train and propositioning porters. And this is the kind of this is what led to his his resignation. Um, but I would look, you know, I, I found the FBI documents that were involved because there was an FBI investigation into this. I went through the papers of um, one of the one of the men involved who's, who sort of set out to destroy Wells, William Bullitt, who the former ambassador to the Soviet Union. And his papers were at Yale. And so I went through his papers, his diaries, all the notes that he took of his meetings with President Roosevelt, where he's trying to convince him to fire Wells. Um, and this just gives you an example of sort of the the level of research that 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 went into sort of one event, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, decades later, uh, writing about the Reagan administration, I discovered in in Ben Bradley's papers, you know, the former <laughs> legendary editor of the Washington Post, I discovered in his papers um, a folder that contained um, notes uh, on an investigation that his paper had launched into rumors that President Reagan was being controlled by a uh, right-wing anti-communist homosexual cabal. Uh, They never published uh, a story on this, but they did a pretty deep investigation into it. Uh, And so I, you know, I used those notes and those stories to go back and interview the, the, the surviving individuals who were involved in that story, Mm. just, and just a handful of them were still alive. I, you know, I, I interviewed them or tried to interview them. Um, so, and then there were a lot of interviews involved. I mean, I interviewed probably, you know, nearly 100 or if not over 100 people uh, in the course of this. Um, I visited lots of presidential libraries, lots of oral histories I used, um, and then lots of declassified government documents, particularly from the FBI. Um, one, of, one of the biggest, I think. Were those um, documents located at Mar-a-Lago by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that'll be for future historians to discover. <laughs> Um, but yes, no, there was a lot of research involved in this book, certainly more uh, more research than I've ever done on any project um, in my life. And it's hard for me to imagine, frankly, another intellectual endeavor that would involve more research than than that, which I had to carry out to write this. Yeah, uh, you definitely deserve a break after this one uh, <laughs> for a while. <clears throat> but anyway, excuse me. Yeah, so uh, the book, essentially, it's this narrative history um you know about the intersection of homosexuality and political power and as you stated it's sort of broken down by presidential administration and you start with fdr because it's there at that time period uh, the start of world war ii um that views on homosexuality uh turn in a in in a destructive way uh for, Mm -hmm. for gays because 
homosexuality goes from being uh, something that is, you know, just considered a, a personal failing or a moral failing or a sin or, you know, a crime of, you know, I don't, I can't, I'm not sure. A, if crime, I, a crime. It was illegal in every state. Right. I'm not sure. Was it a misdemeanor or a felony? Uh, I, uh, I don't, it depends on the state. Yeah. People went to jail. People right. went to jail. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it turns from, again, something that's sort of just a sort of low-level moral failing into something that people thought would potentially uh, be a national security threat. Yeah, I mean, I didn't come across any evidence of a kind of of, of, of a gay political scandal mm. before the Sumner Wells episode that I discussed. And even then, he's not forced to resign. I mean, that that incident on the train where he's sort of harassing these African American porters that happens in 1940, and FDR protects him for three years. It's not until 1943, mm-hmm. you know, well into World War II, that Wells resigns, and it's because of this fear that gay people can be blackmailed, right? Mm-hmm. They have this deep, dark, shameful secret, and now there's this concern of national security, which didn't exist before World War II. America had obviously fought many wars before World War II, but the sense of a kind of all-encompassing national security, you know, where everyone is involved in the war effort, um, you know, loose lips sink ships, this kind of all-pervasive mm-hmm. sense of um, the securitization of, of, of the culture, right? That America is now a world power and, there are, and it has to manage secrets, right? There's no CIA until after World War II. Um, there's no civilian intelligence agency until World War II. It's the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services is the predecessor to the to the CIA. In fact, there's a there's a funny anecdote I came across doing research uh, where I it, it involved um, uh, President Roosevelt's naval aide John McRae, and he's telling a story, and it's sometime in the late 1930s. He's walking outside the White House near the Corcoran Gallery, um, which is if if anyone knows Washington D.C. is right across the street from the White House, and he sees this white paper just flying in the wind. And he snatches it out of the sky, and it turns out it's a confidential document from the State Department. And the State Department used to be in the building right next to the White House. That's currently the the um, old executive office building, right. the Eisenhower building. Right. So this is how secrets were dealt with in Washington before World War II. Like, li- like papers literally flying out the window on, on, on a windy day, right? And World War II changes everything. And the first outing in American politics occurs in May 1942, and it's just – it's the 80th anniversary this year. It's only five months after Pearl Harbor, right? America is completely mobilizing for the war, and uh, a senator who's a conservative Democrat from Massachusetts named David Walsh, he is named by the New York Post, which at the time, as hard as it might be to believe, was a liberal newspaper. Not only that, it was the newspaper of the liberal intelligentsia in New York City. Pro-FDR, pro-intervention, pro-New Deal newspaper. They had their sights on Walsh. He was an enemy, obviously. He was, not, he was, he was an isolationist Democrat, uh, a foe of FDR. They accused him of frequenting a male brothel in Brooklyn, right near the Navy Yard. And this brothel, they allege, was also frequented by Nazi spies. And it turns out that this is a case of mistaken identity. Walsh most likely was gay, but he was not at this brothel. Um, but this is the first outing in American politics, and it's not a coincidence that it happens, you know, right on the cusp of the beginning of of the Second World War, because the fear um, is not that this man is just a degenerate or whatever, that he's immoral, that he's uh, committing, you know, heinous, disgusting acts as a homosexual. It's that he could be, we know he's in possession of state secrets, he's the chairman of the Naval Committee, and that he, because of this homosexual secret, he's liable to blackmail. So World War II is very important in sort of the history of the oppression of gay people and also societal attitudes towards homosexuality. It's no longer just a sin or a crime or a medical, a medical condition. It's now a societal – it's a societal threat. It's a national security threat. Yeah, uh, but World War II also had a uh, transformative effect on, yeah. on uh, life for gays just in general – um, uh, you know, just because for for most gays, I guess, uh, across the country, um, uh, you're very isolated and yep. uh, you know didn't know anybody else who were, who was gay or yep. you know, very few people are gay, and then they enter uh, uh, 
the uh, armed services. Uh, you know, we put 12 million men, something like that, under in uniform during World War II, and that's when the population was, you know, only what 130 million, something like that. So yeah. half half of that has to be, or over half is probably women. So uh, so 12 million out of 70 million men, which you know probably only half of those are of military age. Uh, so, I mean, maybe like one in every three men of military age, probably around there was, uh, served in the armed forces in World War II about that time, you know, ballpark estimate. So, um, and this is the first time for many, uh, so pretty much everybody's in uniform, you know, yep. of that, of that age group and so for, uh, you know, gay or straight, you know, and, um, and so for, uh, for gays, especially gay men, they're going to be, uh, in different parts of the country and meeting, uh, you know, coming across other uh, gay men, you know, yep. and many other gay men that, you know, that they never would have uh, th- never would have had that opportunity if not for the war. And then it's sort of a um, sort of thing. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'm not the only one. There's, you know, quite a few of us, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I would say for women too, there was a lot of kind of rampant lesbianism, mm-hmm. or it was, it was alleged that there was lots of rampant lesbian in the lesbianism in the, in, in the women's army corps. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's paradoxical because you do have all these gay people serving in the military. Very few, and it's also this. This is the time, by the way, when the military's ban on homosexuality is formal is formally um, coded. It's mm-hmm. it's World War Two is when the military. Um, formerly bans homosexuals, but very few gay, very few people are actually barred from serving because of homosexuality. Frankly, just because the military needs every warm body it <laughs> yeah, can get. Much. And so I think that, I think it's only about 10,000 people were expelled for homosexuality, which is an extremely small number. And so we have all these testimonies from gay people who served in World War II that this was a uh, it's, it's been referred to as a national coming out moment because you have all these gay people mostly coming from rural areas let's remember america was still a much more rural society yeah, sure. than it was before the war and so you have all these gay people coming from rural areas they thought that they were the only one and then they realized oh my god there's lots of other people like me this is actually i'm part of a group now mm. um and so world war ii is yes it's on the one hand it is it is sort of raising awareness and fear of gay people from straight society, but among gay people themselves, it's a very formative moment in their sort of consciousness, uh, group consciousness. Yeah, and uh, oh, back to the uh, uh, more on the uh, national security threat thing. Um, the Foreign Service is this uh, was a uniquely attractive institution for. Uh, for gay men at the time, why? Uh, why so? Well, if you think about it, um, it's an all-male institution. Uh, you can travel the world, often to countries that might be more accepting of diverse sexual identities than the United States, and it's the sort of job where you can uh, be respectable and be a bachelor and people might not ask you questions about why you don't have a family, right? Where's the wife and children? Mm. Uh, if you're a diplomat and you're changing postings every couple of years, um, that's, an, that's a very proper excuse that people aren't going to raise an eyebrow at necessarily. Yeah. Hard to drag a family around the world. And yeah. And, and so, you know, I don't have any numbers on this. Um, but we do come across, you know, a, uh, you know, uh, quite a few gay men, um, working in the Foreign Service in the 1930s and 1940s. And this would actually become uh, part of the sort of um, attack on the State Department mm-hmm. by Joe McCarthy later on, uh, that the State Department was full of what they referred to as lavender lads. Uh, and this becomes um, a part of what's known as the lavender scare, which is the the purge of gay people from the federal government that was um, co- co-terminus with the um, Red Scare. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, funny in the book how um, basically uh, the this issue, this gay issue, becomes caught up. It's really used as sort of a, a, a handy weapon in sort of like the, the turf war between the uh, the CIA and mm. the FBI and the other intelligence agencies. You know, was, um, you know, and uh, at the time, you know, homosexuality is seen as something that's more prevalent. 
among the upper class. Yes. Upper classes and the CIA was staffed by, you know, uh, by upper class liberals, you know, waspish uh, upper class liberals. And whereas the FBI is, uh, you know, more uh, blue collar uh, ethnic whites, Catholic, you know, Catholic, Catholics. Catholic, right. Yeah. Right. That's sort there's, of a, thing. there's a great there's a great quote from uh, one of my favorite political figures of the 20th century, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, <laughs> who said that in the era of the security clearance, it was the Harvard men who were checked and the Fordham men who did the checking. <laughs> yeah, that's a good um, and so, yes, homosexuality becomes this weapon uh, that's used by the FBI against the CIA in the early years of the Cold War. And there really is a, a sort of class and regional element to it, as there was to McCarthyism. McCarthyism <laughs> was very much um, a sort of regional you know, you could say uh, uh, there was a religious shading to it, right? Catholic, the American Catholics are very robustly anti-communist, mm -hmm. and the State Department was a very waspy institution, um, populated by people who went to New England boarding schools and Ivy League schools. Um, and so communism was often, you know, communism and homosexuality were intertwined, and they were both, you know, uh, um, used these the, the the people in the State Department were, were accused of both of these things by their more kind of conservative um, and, and antagonists um, in the heartland and in institutions like like the FBI. Yeah. And you uh, you just brought up the lavender scare a couple minutes ago. And, you know, that's something I think most people I mean, I didn't really know much about it. I mean, heard of it, you know, uh, before, but uh, something that's sort of concomitant to the, the Red Scare. But uh, um Talk a little bit about the seriousness of uh, the lavender scare and the, um, you know, the effect it's going to have uh, going forward on Washington and on, uh, you know, life there uh, for gays. I mean, you, I think you said in the book it's somewhere between uh, seven and ten thousand federal employees lost their jobs uh, to homosexuality in just the 1950s. Yeah, and uh, it's going to have this very chilling effect on. Uh, on uh, gay life in Washington. Well, if we date the start of the Red Scare to the speech that Joe McCarthy gave on February 9th, 1950, to the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia, that's the infamous speech where he declares that he has a list with 205 names on it of people in the State Department who are members of the Communist Party. Then we can date the Lavender Scare uh, beginning just a couple of weeks later when the Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, is called to testify on Capitol Hill about McCarthy's charges. And he brings along with him a deputy under Secretary of State named John Puerifoy, who just in passing says that 91 homosexuals have been fired from the State Department over the previous three years. Uh, and that's, by the way, that's far more than the number of people who were fired for left-wing sympathies. Uh, and this sets off a huge fury um, in the nation. And in fact, there was a, a newspaper report at the time that of all the mail that Joe McCarthy received in the months after he made these accusations, only 25% of the letters were primarily concerned with the communist threat. The rest were all con primarily concerned with the threat of sexual deviance. Um, and then uh, this is when the purging of the State Department begins. It becomes a real sort of cultural archetype is that the State Department is infested with with homosexuals, traitorous homosexuals. This becomes a means of, you know, explaining why things were not going well in the world for the United States against the Soviet Union and communist China. Right. We have a series mm -hmm of upsetting developments. The Soviets test a nuclear weapon. The Chinese are um, taking, the communist Mao is taking over control of China, uh, mainland China. Uh, the Soviets are creating, uh, they're, they're, they're dividing Germany. The division of Germany occurs formally in 1949. So they are the kind of McCarthyite right are looking for people to blame and it's communists and homosexuals in the State Department. Uh, and then in 1952, Dwight Eisenhower and the Republicans, they sweep uh, the elections for the first time, winning, winning control of all of the Senate, the House and the White House for the first time since um, FDR's uh, uh, reign. And one of the first one of the first things that 
um, happens in the Eisenhower administration is actually McCarthy wages a, a campaign against Dwight Eisenhower's um, ambassador to the Soviet Union, a man named Charles Bolin. Bolin had been at Yalta, you know, the infamous Yalta conference where Eastern Europe was basically consigned to Soviet rule and had become a real byword for appeasement and traitor and, and treason um, to the McCarthy forces. They accused Charles Bolin, they started a whisper campaign basically accusing him of being a homosexual. It's not true, by the way. Um, but this is the real, this is the first real fight between Eisenhower and the moderate Republicans against the McCarthyite right is over this Bolin nomination. And that happens just the second month of his administration. It's March 1953. And then the following month, Eisenhower signs an executive order that bars all gay people from all government jobs and explicitly prohibits them from holding security clearances. And this is what leads to this massive purge where it's estimated that, yes, yeah, seven to 10,000 people are, are separated from their government jobs because of homosexuality or the accusation of homosexuality. Um, and, you know, McCarthyism, you know, formally ends really in 1954 when he's censured by the Senate and he dies a couple of years later. The Lavender Scare goes on well into the 1960s. The government mm -hmm. is, expelling, is, is, is expelling people because of homosexuality. And it's not until 1975 that the Civil Service Commission rescinds the ban on gay people being able to work for the federal government. And it's not a, it's, yeah, not, it's not until the 90s for the security clearances, yeah, right? Yeah, 95, 95 is when Bill Clinton lifts, lifts the ban on gay people receiving security clearances. So, you know, this period of time that I call the specter of homosexuality, you know, it, it reigns, it rules over Washington. It overshadows Washington far longer than did the, you know, obsession with um, communism. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about a, um, a few different uh, gay men um, sort of around this time period just because uh, I think their stories are just sort of uh, interesting and just sort of instructive um, you know people that sort of hear those anecdotes uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, Frank Kemeny and the uh, is the Mattachine Society is that how you pronounce yeah. it? Mattachine? Yeah. Frank Kemeny was a Harvard trained PhD astronomer and a World War II veteran who was working for the U.S. Army Map Service in 1957, when just two months after the Soviets launched Sputnik into space, he is recalled from his posting in Hawaii, where he's doing, you know, observational work um, in in the skies. This is the this is the organization that is the predecessor to the geospatial and um, intelligence agency. So they're basically mapping the you know space for the U.S. Army. He is called back to Washington where he's fired for being gay. The government received information that he was gay and he's fired. And it just, by the way, it goes to show you how uh, obsessive and pervasive this fear of homosexuals was. That the government, you know, two months at the, at the height of the space race, right, two months after Sputnik is launched, the government would expend all these resources and fire a Harvard-trained PhD astronomer. And Frank becomes the first person... Uh, so fired for his sexual orientation to decide to actually try to challenge this. You know, thousands of people had been fired, but no one wanted to challenge it because if you were to challenge it legally, you'd have to become, you'd have, you'd have to come out. You'd have, to, right. you'd, have, you'd have to go public and that would ruin your life and ruin your career. And Frank had an enormous amount of courage and he decided that I'm going to challenge this, that it's not me who is sick. It is the society that is sick and it's the federal government that is wrong here. And he tries to enlist the ACLU to support his cause and not even the ACLU would support him. And I think this is telling, um, you know, the ACLU would take the cases of people accused of communism or left wing sympathies. They would not take the case of a homosexual. And that sort of goes to my point earlier that mm -hmm. the worst thing you could be was a homosexual, right? Not even the ACLU would support you. Yeah. So he launches a very lonely struggle uh, against the federal government. Um, his case is, is you know, d denied. He loses. The su Supreme Court refuses to hear it. And in 1961, with a, with a small group of other men meeting in the Hay Adams Hotel, they decide to create an organization called the Mattachine Society which is named after, the word is French, and it's named after a kind of a group of medieval French uh, troubadours who would 
perform these sort of silly skits making fun of the rulers of the country behind masks. They wore masks. And, the, and so the, the, the um, significance of the name here is that the homosexual in America ha- at the time, you know, had to be a masked uh, mm-hmm. person. They had to they had they had to hide. And this is the first real sustained gay rights organization in the United States. They uh, write letters to every congressman. They are launching the first demonstration for gay rights outside the White House in 1965. Yeah, years before Stonewall, yeah. Four years before yeah. Stonewall, they're they're doing demonstrations outside the Civil Service Commission, the Defense Department, the State Department, um, and Frank would be instrumental in many of the very important early gay rights victories. He, in 1971, becomes the first openly gay person to run for Congress in D.C. That's the year that the non-voting delegate position was was created for the District of Columbia. He runs in that race. Two years later, he's instrumental in getting the American Psychiatric Association to remove homosexuality from its list of mental disorders, which I think is really one of the most important and overlooked gay rights victories. Because once you sort of removed the medical diagnosis, um, it's and that diagnosis came about during uh, the Lavender Scare. Was it, it was that, in 1952? Yeah, yeah. Right, that same year, right at the height of the 1952 election when the Republicans were running a race um, in, w- in which this sort of, you know, um, opposition to homosexuals in the Truman administration and the State Department was a, was, was a key feature, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a relic of that era, of that, of that sex panic of the 1950s. Yeah. Um, and then two years later, Frank is instrumental in getting the Civil, right, the, uh, Civil Service Commission to lift the ban on gay people working in the federal government. So he's a very instrumental figure. And, you know, he lived his life in penury. I mean, he he never because this ban on gay people working for the federal government it also applied to federal contractors. Right. So even though he had this interest in, in real important knowledge in astronomy, he couldn't get a job at any of these federal contractors. And so he you know, he lives a he lives a life of poverty. And I, you know, because he because he devoted himself to this cause. Um, but he would go on to be vindicated. And, you know, one of the inspirations for me writing this book was in 2009, um, in the early months of the Obama administration, the federal government issued a formal apology to Frank. Mm. He was still living. He would die in 2011. But the federal government, um, this, the Office of Personnel Management, which is what the Civil Service Commission used to be, it happened to be led at the time by a gay man. They, they issued a formal apology to Frank. Uh, and I was able to attend that event. It was very moving. So mm-hmm. he fortunately lived to see uh, his his ideas and his vision uh, vindicated. But it was a very tough life, and he had to suffer a lot. Yeah. Um, all right, Bayard Rustin, uh, the most prominent openly gay man in America, you say, at that time. I, I, I had, uh, you know, known quite a bit about Bayard Rustin, you know, through his uh, work in the civil rights movement, but... Uh, um, probably a lot of people out there don't know much about him. So, uh, another, uh, extremely fascinating, uh, individual. I should, uh, tell people a little bit about, uh, about him. Yes. Bayard Rustin was a African-American civil rights activist. Uh, he was an ex-communist, uh, a very committed anti-communist social Democrat who worked for Martin Luther King. He was the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington. And just a couple of weeks before that March, Strom Thurmond rose before the United States Senate and uh, revealed that Bayard Rustin was a sex pervert. Uh, and he also accused him of being a communist, which was obviously false. He was a, he was a very much an anti-communist. But these two, again, these two accusations often right. went hand in hand. Um, and he was able to do this because he had a arrest record. I mean, you know, many gay men, if you were a sexually active gay man at the time, um, you know, it was not uncommon that you would run into the law. I mean, there were not, you know, there were, there was no, uh, there, there, there were very few kind of legitimate avenues to meet other gay men other than say in public parks or public bathrooms, public places was where gay men would meet each other, um, both for, you know, sexual and not sexual contacts. Right. So he was arrested in California in the 1950s, Bayard Rustin was, and that arrest record probably was given to Strom Thurmond by the FBI. It's hard to know how else he would have come across a local police um, arrest record. 
So he makes this accusation in 1963, just a couple of weeks before the march. And what's remarkable is that the leaders of the march, the African-American civil rights leaders, they choose to maintain Rustin as the organizer for several reasons. One, they knew he was gay. And this this had actually been this this accusation had been used against Rustin before by a fellow African-American civil rights figure, Adam Clayton Powell. Uh, Jr., the congressman from Harlem, who was a rival of Martin Luther King's, he and King were having a dispute over something, and uh, Clayton Powell threatened to accuse, to to allege that he that that King and Rustin were lovers, right? So this had been used against Rustin before. Um, they also didn't want the the leaders of the civil rights movement. They didn't want to give uh, a proverbial scalp to Strom Thurmond, so they decide to retain. Rustin. The march is, is a, obviously an, an amazing success. Rustin speaks at the march. He's on the cover of Life magazine just a couple of weeks after. And but through this, he becomes the first, you know, gay public figure to survive an outing. Um, you know, we've talked about some figures, uh, Sumner Wells, mm. David Walsh, whose political career ended after those accusations. He lost reelection. Um, no public figure had survived an outing until until this moment with Bayard Rustin. So it's an important moment, you know, not only in civil rights history, but also in in gay history, too. All right. And one more. Uh, and then I guess we can let it rest. Uh, a man named Bob Waldron. Uh, yeah, who was close to uh, LBJ. Uh, and, uh, well, I'll let you set the story, uh, but, uh, his specifically uh, his, uh, letter, a letter he writes to a friend of his named Wendell Phillips, who, um, basically provided information, I believe to the FBI that, uh, Waldron, uh, had made a pass at him, you know, years in the past, something like that. And uh, this essentially blocked him from uh, Waldron blocked him from serving in LBJ's White House. Uh, but the, the the letter itself is just very uh, uh, I don't know it's a it's a tough letter to yeah. <laughs> to read you know. Yeah, I would say this was really the most heartbreaking document that I came across in my research, and I uncovered it actually just late in the process. Uh, I mean, I'll just give some background. Bob Waldron was a young aide to LBJ from Texas. He began working for LBJ when when Johnson was the majority leader in the United States Senate. He continued to work for him when he was vice president. Uh, And his job was basically that of what's known as a body man, you know, the guy who's sort of always by the politician's side, who's Mm -hmm. carrying the, the bag, who's, you know, Who's sort of the bag man, right? Who's yeah. always there, um, and he was a very trusted member of the kind of LBJ inner circle of, of the Johnson family. He was close to Lady Bird Johnson and and LBJ's daughters. He was basically like a son to LBJ. LBJ didn't have a son. He always wanted one, and Waldron was basically a son. And then in the weeks after the Kennedy assassination, when Waldron was helping LBJ move into the White House. The Civil Service Commission, which was doing a, you know, investigation like it has a background check, like it has to do on on anyone uh, who would be working in the White House. They uncovered evidence that Waldron was gay and the evidence came in the form of this interview that they did with this other man who was a friend of Waldron's, um, who told the FBI, who told the investigators a story about spending the night at Waldron's home. And they were sharing a bed, uh, as was, you know, common or more more common in the 1960s, right, where, you know, people didn't have as much space as they might have today. Uh, They were sharing a bed and Waldron made a pass at him. And he revealed this story to the Civil Service Commission. And that was all the evidence that they needed, that Waldron was a homosexual. And this was presented to LBJ. It was actually, ironically, this report was given to another LBJ aide named Walter Jenkins, uh, who the following year would um, fall victim in his own gay scandal, a very public gay scandal, when he was arrested for having sex in the basement bathroom of the YMCA just around the corner from the White House just a few weeks before the 1964 presidential election. 
But this this um, interview, this revelation basically ruins uh, Waldron's career or his political career, at least. And he wrote a letter to the man who outed him. And it's a very heartbreaking. It's a very moving letter. It's, it's a quite forgiving letter. Um, but there is a line in there that I think is important for the purposes of our conversation where he's describing what's, you know, what's going to become of him now, of Waldron now, that he's been exposed as a homosexual. And he says, I will be marked by our society, which does not permit a return. And this goes back to my earlier point about yeah. homosexuality being a worse sin than communism. A communist could renounce communism. And in fact, some of the most important figures in the conservative movement in America were former communists, including, and it's important in this context, Whitaker Chambers. Whitaker Chambers, yeah, sure. Who was also a homosexual, right? But, you know, Chambers could renounce his communism and become a hero to the conservative movement. There was no way that he could talk about his past homosexual lifestyle. And that, in that whole homosexual existence, you know, uh, became a real subject of innuendo and, and, and a whisper campaign during his confrontations with, with Alger Hiss. A homosexual could not do what a communist could do, or, or he, couldn't, he couldn't come out as a former homosexual. As Waldron says, you know, he will be marked by a society which does not permit a return. And that was true yeah. in American politics. Um, there's a quote a pretty funny quote. Well, when you when you first hear it, it's a very famous quote, I think, in American politics. It's from Edwin Edwards, who was the, oh, notori right, sure. the notoriously corrupt governor of Louisiana, who famously said in 1953, running for uh, election, he said, the only way I can lose this election is if they find me with a dead girl or a live boy. Yeah. And yeah. it's kind of funny, but when you think about it, what is he saying? He's saying that the only thing worse or equivalent to murder in American politics is homosexuality. Um, and I think that was true. That was that was true in American politics until relatively recently. I mean, and really until the 80s, you know, until that the 80s is, is, is the first is, is when we see the first, you know, openly gay politicians on the federal level. Um, and there's there's two congressmen from Massachusetts, ironically, or sort of coincidentally, mm -hmm. um, Gary Studs and Barney Frank, who have adjoining districts actually in Massachusetts. They're the first two, you know, openly gay politicians at the federal level to to re retain their seats after they are um, after they come out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, you know, like I said, a communist. Uh, I mean, you could basically renounce communism and still have a uh a public life in a way i mean there's i mean the the, the conservative movement in the you know uh the 1950s the beginning of the, the the modern conservative movement i mean it's you know uh james burnham wilmore kendall all these different yeah. guys who were ex-communists or that sin sort of forgiven but even if you were you know even if you were a gay man and said well i've renounced homosexuality uh, you know, it's just, that was just a period in my life and that's over, blah, 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 blah. I'm, I'm totally not gay now. Uh, the, the, you couldn't do that. No. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. All right. But, uh, speaking of, um, uh, conservative anti-communist, uh, talk a little about, there's also this sort of unique attraction, uh, in this time period, like the, the early to mid sixties, uh, unique attraction to anti-communism and, uh, a radical individualism, a more, I guess, like libertarian ish streak um that that many uh gay men shared at this time like uh something i didn't know like harvey milk for example was mm. was a goldwater supporter and so was uh yeah. randy schultz uh what was the attraction uh to this uh sort of political philosophy uh for gay men of the period well if you think about being a gay man uh in the 1950s or this era your existence is is very similar to that of say a dissident in a in a communist society. Um, the government is you know raiding your bars and your meeting locations. They are um, seizing your your mail. Your your all these uh, gay publications are being deemed obscene by the federal government and they're being impounded by the postmaster general. If you're politically active, you know, in the Mattachine Society, their first meeting was surveilled by the FBI and it was infiltrated by a member of the Washington, D.C. police. Right. So you're and, and then that's not even to begin to say your your sexual life is heavily yeah. policed. 
So, so the government's the, gov- the enemy, basically. The government to, is your enemy, yeah. and it's a, you know, and it's different in the 1960s, where you know African Americans would look to the federal government as their ally against mm-hmm. racist state governments. That was not the case for gay men or gay people. Um, it would not really be until much later that the federal government or that gay people would, would try to appeal really seriously to the federal government and see the federal government as potentially being the means by which they could attain equal rights. So we, I, you know, I came across a number of gay men uh, who were very libertarian in their politics. And there's, there's, a, there's a number of them uh, who were involved in the founding of Young Americans for Freedom, mm-hmm. yeah. Doug Caddy, Jim Colby. The congressman, um, and there are a number of them who are around the Goldwater uh, campaign, and it's in one of his novels. Uh, Gore Vidal makes a kind of passing joke. He says all all the male hustlers were Goldwater supporters. <laughs> <laughs> so there is this sort of you know gay conservative libertarian streak, um, which has always been there. I mean we, we we know about it now, and you know we 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 knew about it at the time during the Reagan era. Mm-hmm. Um, and I write a lot about that in the book, but I think it goes back even further. And I and I trace it again to this sort of, you know, Cold War um, milieu, um, in this sense that uh, the government is the enemy. Um, I'm an indiv- as a, as a gay man. I'm an individualist, and I want and I want the government to 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 leave me alone. Yeah. Um, and that's that's always been there. Yeah. And. Um... And it was funny, I have this tied in the book, I think like right, uh, maybe like the week before I started the book, I watched uh, Oliver Stone's JFK for like the first time in like 20 yeah. years or so, right? Yeah. And because uh, it's a, I mean, the movie's batshit crazy and probably one of the most irresponsible films ever made. Yes. Uh, but it's also a great movie and the cast is great. And every, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a fantastically, you know, well-made uh a movie uh but i'm sitting there watching it and i, I just said i was just like my god like <laughs> this is like this is maybe one of the most homophobic movies yeah. i've ever seen and uh you know in retrospect so, you know i didn't you know like i said i hadn't watched the movie in like 20 years so i'm 40 now so you know maybe it was like 2021 20, something like that the last time i watched it and uh, so it didn't really dawn on me you know then uh, but it was funny, you know, after, you know, just having seen it and, and you have a little part in one of the chapters on, uh, Jim Garrison, the, uh, New Orleans district attorney who is played famously played by Kevin Costner, uh, in the JFK movie and the, and the, the Clay Shaw trial, uh, Clay Shaw is the Tommy Lee Jones character in, uh, um, <laughs> in the JFK movie and, uh, just how, uh, fucking whacked uh garrison was and then basically uh, i mean because oliver stone sort of adds all his kind of stuff into it uh you know who who killed kennedy uh which is basically to oliver stone like everybody you know like the uh you know, the military industrial complex and the mafia and the cubans and uh all these people taking part uh but to garrison it was basically just like this homosexual uh thrill kill cult that yeah basically decided they wanted to kill kennedy one because he was soft on communism in cuba and and two because they just wanted to prove that they could get away with it sort of like like leopold and Loeb. uh, uh yeah but it's just it was just uh it was just funny to me like you know having just watched that movie again recently and having that sort of you having sort of the same thoughts on it that I did, you know, uh, or that, that whole, uh, Clay Shaw trial by uh, Garrison. Yeah. I mean, this goes back to, uh, a theme that we haven't discussed here really, which is the way in which, um, homophobia is very bound up in conspiracy theory in this Mm -hmm. period of time. And that there are all sorts of conspiracy theories that attach themselves to homosexuality. Um, like the groomer. It's similar to, Say it again. Like the groomer stuff. The groomer stuff. That's yeah. the modern manifestation yeah, yeah. of this, but it goes back. I trace it back to a turn of the se- or an early 20th century political scandal in in Prussia, in in sort of Wilhelmine Germany, where there was a um, it was accused the 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 um, emperor at the time, the Kaiser, was accused of being controlled by a homosexual cabal of advisors, which is by the way 
the same accusation that was made about Ronald Reagan, you know, decades later in 1980, right? So because these people, these homosexuals, they live in secret, they're not open about who they are, uh, they have a secret code language, they're transnational, right? Their loyalties are not to the country in which they live, it's to this sort of secret international fraternity mm-hmm. of fellow homosexuals. You just, it's, it's just this constant, you know, the, what was the lavender scare? It was a conspiracy theory about homosexual power, uh, that, and that homosexuals are operating, uh, with nefarious designs in secret. And that is basically what the garrison prosecution of Clay Shaw was. He never made the case explicitly at trial, but he repeatedly, you know, on off the record conversations with journalists, um, would allege that there was a a homosexual conspiracy to kill the world's most handsome man. He said it was a homosexual thrill killing. Yeah. That this group of right wing homosexuals, you know, wanted to avenge uh, the Bay of Pigs, and they and they got a thrill out of killing the world's most handsome man. And this was this was the basis of the of the Garrison prosecution. It's the basis of JFK, the movie. Uh, which yes, it is a great in terms of technical filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It is a great film, but I you know I liken it to the work of Lenny Riefenstahl. I mean, you know, technically uh, very proficient, even incredibly impressive and remarkable. Um, but the message behind the movie, I, I I think it's actually the most homophobic movie that a major Hollywood studio has has ever produced. Yeah, I mean just I mean just the way you know. Tommy, the Clay Shaw character is portrayed, and oh, uh, the uh, 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 Joe Pesci's character, the David Ferry one, and then uh, yeah. you know, there's that scene, uh, <laughs> you know, where they're having that like dinner party with the the, Kevin, yeah. the male prostitute, the Kevin Bacon character, yeah. and all dressed up as like the, you know, like the uh, in like Regency era, you know, uh, outfits and sniffing amyl nitrates and walking each other around on leashes and that sort of thing. And it's just like, yeah. but I mean, the whole purpose of it is to make you think that like, oh, these are uh, disreputable, seedy, uh, you know, shady people and that live this, you know, that they're degenerates, you know, and therefore uh, not out of character for them to want to assassinate the president of the United States, you know, it's, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's just mind-bogglingly homophobic, that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, well, we're already running, uh, God, we didn't even get to a lot of stuff. There's so much stuff I want to talk about, but, um, I guess, uh, sort of in, um, cause the, I think the Reagan administration has the most chapters, uh, devoted to it yeah uh which is a sort of a big time or a important time um uh for gay washington well um you know cultural changes in the 70s um the gay world and the, the gay world and the straight world are starting to sort of come together and it's uh becoming a tad bit easier to be openly homosexual uh but uh, then, you know, AIDS come about, comes about in the early 80s. And uh, 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 what is the impact of AIDS on gay Washington and um, the Reagan and his administration? What's their real, uh, and Ronald Reagan himself, what's their real legacy on AIDS? Um, well, the impact is really just sort of... Uh, it outs people, uh, right? Because you have all these maybe these, these closeted gay men working in Republican politics, and suddenly they're forced to confront this disease. And I write about one of the most prominent victims of the disease in Washington. It was a man named Terry Dolan, mm. who uh, was the co-founder of the National Conservative Political Action Committee, NICPAC, one of the first PACs. Um, and very right-wing, and really part of the new right. I mean, really one of the most important organizations in the new right. They help uh, the Republicans take back the Senate in 1980. Um, and he's a real combative, uh, fiery uh, conservative activist. Um, and he's gay. And his older brother Tony is Ronald Reagan's chief speechwriter. Um, and he dies of AIDS in 1986. And it leads to a very um, dramatic confrontation between Tony Dolan and the Washington Post. When the Washington Post 
publishes a sort of expose, a pot they posthumously out Terry Dolan, uh, and they publish it in, in an expose of his sort of secret gay life as a as a conservative gay man, um, and it becomes a very uh, I mean Tony Dolan publishes a rambling eight thousand word uh, essay. He buys two pages in the Washington Times to denounce Ben Bradley in the Washington Post. Um, and it's this and it really shows sort of the the hypocrisy, I think, of the right at this time. Right. That they could ignore this disease for so long. I mean, President Reagan didn't even mention the word AIDS until 1985. That's four years after it was discovered. I mean, you know, imagine a president not mentioning the word COVID. Obviously, COVID was a much more uh, widespread disease but still i mean for the president not to even mention it to utter it mm. until four years into it i think is shows the sort of lack of concern um so i think that was the main legacy of sort of aids in washington was that it sort of broke down it's it sort of it, it was one more way to reveal the prevalence of gay people and that they're you know everywhere even among the most even among the places where you would least suspect them yeah all right uh Again, we're running close to the end here, so um, I guess I'll just uh, finish up uh, with the question I pretty much ask everybody that comes on on the podcast, and that's, uh, what would you like uh, the audience to get out of this book? What's the one thing you'd want to take, uh, you'd want a reader to take away from reading it? Uh, I think it's the power of um, the capacity for this country to have positive change. Um, there is no more dramatic transformation in public attitudes in American history, I'll, go, I'll, I'll say, than that on the question of homosexuality. If you look at public attitudes about homosexuality and gay people at the time when this book begins in the 1930s, when homosexuality is a crime, it's a medical condition, it's a sin, it's barely even speakable. You can't even utter the word really in polite company. And you read this history and you go through this book and you see all the terrible things that were done and the attitudes that people had, the lives that were ruined. And you look at where we are today, um, there is no issue on which there's been a more dramatic positive transformation in public attitudes than on this question. And I think it's worth studying why and how that happened. And I think it is because of our American system, uh, in particular, our First Amendment freedoms. Uh, you know, gay people literally, you know, were 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 closeted. <laughs> they they yeah. were they had to be secret. They could not talk about themselves, and they harnessed their First Amendment right to free speech and free expression, and they convinced people. And it took a long time. This didn't happen overnight, um, but it was it was slow and it was um, it was a, it was a slow concerted effort, and people's hearts and minds were changed. And I think it's an incredible David and Goliath story and i think it says uh i think it says great things about this country and there's there's a there's yeah. a lot to be there's a lot to be disappointed about and depressed about when it comes to the state of our country now but as a beneficiary of this positive change i have enormous gratitude um so that's that's probably the main message that i would want to convey yeah i mean just thinking about uh you know andrew sullivan who who's uh been on this podcast before i mean he yeah. wrote that he wrote that uh, that essay on the case for, or the conservative case for gay marriage. I believe yeah. was the, the title was it 1988, 89, something like 1989, I believe. And then, yeah, basically, you know, everybody else on the New Republic editorial board is like, "What are you? That's the yeah. loopiest idea we've ever heard." And then, you know, 25 years later, maybe you know, gay marriage <laughs> legal across the United States. I mean, I mean, it doesn't feel that way, I guess. To people, but it's almost like a blink in the uh, blink of an eye, really, in yeah. the historic. I mean, it's just crazy. But uh, yeah, I, I, uh, that's a point well taken there. Uh, I absolutely agree with you. But uh, yeah, we're right up against the clock here, so uh, I'll let you go. Uh, again, the thank, book is. Uh, see, oh, uh, anything else you can, you want to plug before we go? By the way, uh, your social media, anything like that? Uh, you want to get that information uh, out there? Just, well, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at jkerchick. But really, just plug in the book. Yeah, very great. Yeah, again, that book, uh, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, highly, highly, highly recommend it to everybody out there. Like I said, it's a, it's a very long book, but it's a very quick read, uh, if that makes any sense. But uh, like I said, make sure you go out and get a copy of it. It's really uh, 
maybe the best book I've read all year. And I read, you. you know, when I, <laughs> and I read books for a job, you know, or, you know, part time. Uh, but, and, uh, so highly, highly recommended for everybody out there. So go get it. And, uh, again, my guest, uh, Mr. James Kerjick, Mr. Kerjick, thank you very, very much for coming thank on the you. podcast. All right. Great. Thank you. And again, if you like this podcast, please uh, make sure you leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. And if you have books to, you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach out to me at tbensonandheartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our Twitter account for the uh, podcast. Our uh, Twitter handle is just at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So make sure you check us out there and give us a follow. Send us a DM if you want or, you know, whatever. You have any questions, comments, that sort of thing. So check that out. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye. Sing a song of sad young Glasses full of rye All the news is bad again Kiss your dreams goodbye All the sad Sitting in the bar, drinking up the night, and missing all the stars, all the Drifting through the town Drinking up the night Trying not to drown All the All the same
someone they can hold for just a little while. Tired little girl, she does the best. She does the best that she can. Trying to be For sale. 